this week on The Futurists. If you've grown up with a warning, perhaps the people in your future also had that warning. So in my Uplift universe, what I do is I change the social premise, and that is people have read all these warnings and they've decided we're going to be careful not to be bullying assholes to these new creations. Don't you think they would still make mistakes? If you get past the simplistic automatic dystopia, you're still going to have a flawed utopia. And those flaws in a better society, I find more interesting. Well, Robert, you look like you've returned from your travels. Welcome back. Uh, Thanks. How was your your month in Europe? Was it, it was was not quite a month, was it? But it, it was a bit more than a month. It was great. Uh, it was a terrific trip, and um, and I learned a great many things. I can't wait to share with you. Awesome. Fantastic. Looking forward to uh, catching up in person soon. But today we have uh, the, it's my distinct pleasure to uh, welcome to the show David Brin, a um, storied and celebrated science fiction author, has made many predictions in the space. Of course, you probably know uh, the movie, The Postman, that was written based on um, uh was was produced based on his work but he he's uh, twice won the Hugo award for best novel um he, he's he's a hard sci-fi guy which which um I love and you know if you're wondering about things like um uh, CERN um you know and uh, stuff like that like uh, just one of David's novels um Earth predicted the creation of micro black holes at CERN which we're now in, in right in the midst of at the moment um amongst many other things um David Brin welcome to the futurists it's delightful to have you with us well uh, thank you Brett and uh certainly it's it's good to re-encounter Robert uh the uh you know, it's uh, guys who poke away and poke away. I think the biggest compliment I can give someone is uh, almost any other civilization would have uh, burned you at the stake by now <laughs> uh, and uh, probably throttled you at 16. Um, and uh, in this civilization, you are at least somewhat honored or at least uh, put up with. <laughs> and uh, that is that is the dangling participle up with which I will definitely put. Well, great to have you on the show, David. Fantastic. Uh, we've been talking to a number of people who are focused on the future, thinking about the future. And um, one of the things we love to ask to begin with is how how is your work helping people think about the future? Of course, there's a science fiction that you've written and that contains many different ideas. But beyond that, I'd also love to talk to you about your nonfiction work as well. Well, yeah, I, um, I'm spread way too thin. Uh, and uh, that was the genesis of one of my novels, which was a wish fantasy about having a machine where you could make cheap copies of yourself every day. They last for 24 hours. You might call them dittos or golems. They know everything you know, kind of resent being the one that's going to melt in 24 hours. 
But uh, if they share your sense of purpose to get things done, uh, then you can download their memories at the end of the day. And you have been essentially five yous going out into the world, coming back together again uh, in each given day. And you can uh, get everything done. Well, I, I get more hate mail over that uh, book from people saying, I want that machine. <laughs> you, you angled that that glimmering possibility in front of me and now every busy day i i, I dream for it uh it's also one of my most fun novels so it's got the uh, among the among the worst puns but um in any event didn't you didn't you um predict in one of your novels i would have thought this would have been controversial that that um using some sort of form of gravitational lensing or wormholes that we were able to look back in time and broadcast history um something related to that uh i have a a young adult series that i'm running called uh, david brins out of time in which uh, so far a dozen different authors, uh, several of them Nebula winners like uh, Nancy Kress and Sheila Finch, but but more recently I've been mentoring um, younger authors, paying it forward. And uh, what happens is that it's got an ideal teen reader premise because we suddenly get teleportation to the stars, but it kills adults. So not only must all the colonists and spies and adventurers and warriors and diplomats all be teenagers, but the, uh, instead of your usual future dystopia, it's been a wonderful utopia for several hundred years. So utopia in peril is just as good a way to get action in mm. your story, but it also implies a little hope. But the problem is, they haven't had much use for warriors or liars for a couple of hundred years. So they twist the um, teleportation machine, a genius figures out how to do it, and turns it into a time snatcher. So they reach back in time to get heroes who saved the world at various times, especially the mid 21st century, um, and uh, get them because they know how to do all those things. They don't know how to lie and, and, and sneak, and, but they can't get the adult versions who saved the world. Right, right. Because that's teleportation. They died too. So you have to get them when they were teenage schlumps in junior high school <laughs> or Joan of Arc's page or Leonidas of Rhodes from 300 AD. So you have a lot of fun uh, historical crossovers. I don't know that that um, rapid plug that you enticed from me uh, actually uh, actually answered your question. But no, it's fine. I just remember something um, in, in I, I'm not sure if it was Earth or whatever, but one of the side effects of um, one of the technologies. But he, here's a question for you. You know, you, given that you um, wrote about particle accelerators and this sort of uh, in, in investigation of, of these sciences. Um, what, do you, what do you think about the, the crazy theory that um, CERN created an alternative reality and created the Mandela effect? Oh, well, look, um, a lot of us have had uh, what I call Mandela sniffs. You know, you, you, you sniff the air and you say, what's that smell? What's that suspicious 
um, a glitch in my memory. Uh, in my case, for instance, I was absolutely sure, and I was in mourning, that Joni Mitchell had died uh, in the late 80s. Mm. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was very surprised about uh, five, six, seven years later when she came out with a new album. Uh, many people seem to remember something very similar about Nelson Mandela. Right. And yet, if you look at all the Mandela Effect sites, the stuff is really lame. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's about like, it's, it's about the monocle as missing from the Monopoly guy. Yeah, and, I know it's about as lame as um, most UFO sightings. That bad. Uh, and by the way, I am notorious uh, online for uh, sneering at ninety nine percent of UFO fetishism. Yes, uh, and I'll include in chat uh, my most recent uh, decryption of what uh, those that aren't weather balloons and West a fellow named West has has decrypted about ninety percent of the these supposed sightings uh, as being uh, optical effects and all of that. But that leaves a certain number that are these glowing tic tacs moving around in midair and ways that. Um, would uh, destroy physical objects or be non-Newtonian and all that. Well, I'm look. I'm Mr. Alien. I, I've uh, I've been involved in SETI for forty years, uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm on NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts program as uh, as their senior most advisor. And uh, of course, I've written about aliens from almost every perspective. I could shake a stick at. Um, so I, I'm not unfriendly to the notion that they're aliens. Uh, uh -huh. In fact, I, in my novel existence, I posit the most likely kind that we will meet is when we get to the asteroid belts, we might find either dead or dormant or uh, crippled, uh, as I depict in existence, uh, lurkers, lurker probes that were sent here across the last billion years. And some of them use me as their front for uh, their stories and uh, to um, mess with your heads. I will tell them, shut up. They think <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> right, Robert? You think I'm joking. Tell the truth. No, <laughs> I love it. You didn't even talk, right. talk to us about sci-fi as a tool for thinking athletically about the future. You know, you've given us examples just now of how you debunk theories that you find to be specious. You've also talked to us about how you'll playfully think about and, you know, in, um, mess around with in a constructive way uh, other ideas that you do find constructive. Well, yeah, look, um, I, I mentioned that, you know, we, the, the, we uh, we are here on screen right now probably would have been burned at the stake. I remember all my past lives. I was garroted, burned, um, eviscerated, disemboweled before I was 16 because I had this personality. In this civilization, I've gotten all this and kids and, and honors. So I am loyal to the enlightenment experiment very very loyal to this experiment that has allowed guys like us and um, our tolerant uh, spouses to to do well in this world so um, yeah it's it's poking away 
at the um, ground in front of us as we're charging into the future. That's what science fiction does. Science fiction is the stick we use to poke into the um, territory as we speed up every day our charge into the future. And it has to be forward. Those who would renunciate and return to the past um, would have us return to utter failure. 6,000 years, 6,000 years of uh, hierarchical pyramid cultures in which the kings and the lords and the priests repressed the only thing that lets us navigate across this minefield, and that is criticism, uh, reciprocal criticism, aimed even at those at the top. And that's the secret, that's the secret sauce. And um, so I don't, I don't try to repress the guys on those UFO sites. I just ask questions like, for instance, has anybody looked at these Tic Tacs and done an analysis to see if any light, and I mean any, 1%, a tenth of a percent, if any light from that ocean behind the Tic Tac is passing through? It may be washed out by the brilliant, bright light of the Tic Tac, but if any light at all is passing through that, it's not a physical object. And therefore, this whole business about having super warp, de-dorp, de-dorp drive is not pertinent. It's an aerial phenomenon, all right. Mm-hmm. It's a glowing dot in the atmosphere. And if you gave me $10 million tomorrow, within a month, I'd do it. I'd be making dots in the atmosphere that do all the things that these um, these so-called UAPs are doing. Hmm. So what's the simplest explanation? The simplest explanation is it's a cat laser. <laughs> a cat laser for humans. That's right. And hmm. it's probably being, being done by the biggest assholes around us. Right. Those poor pilots are being treated to a cat laser. Now, now you, you've got um, quite a history of making some um, predict some great predictions. Um, one, for example, uh, Kessler syndrome, which of course is the concern about space junk. You start off your novel existence with a garbage orbital garbage collector. Um, of course, you know you predicted uh, um, you know some of the work that's been done um, in places like CERN and so forth. You've looked at gene therapy and uh, many of these areas uh, you, you've been quite prescient on. But let's talk about the mechanics of forecasting because you, you don't stick to just at the next 20 or 30 years either. You are riding 10,000 years in, exi- you know, in the future sometimes. But how do you go about that process of forecasting? What informs you so that you've made such, uh, such good bets in the past? Well, um, my novel, uh, my novella, uh, Chrysalis, caused a cancer researcher to write to me and say, Bryn, all your other crap will probably fade away like everybody's works, but 100 years from now, this this speculation about what cancer actually is is what you'll be remembered for. (laughs) What a lovely comment. Uh, Because uh, I speculated um, about what cancer might actually be. Uh, And, uh, but you see, that's, 
that's a good example to answer your question. What I do is I look for um, pigeonholes or niches in the ideascape that are interesting, that could make a good story, and that have been underutilized. Like, for instance, uh, showing kids, kid readers, a possibly hopeful future. When does that ever happen? Um, When it comes to, for instance, the gravity laser in Earth. Now, uh, you have to be able to make micro black holes and then find out if they reflect um, gravitational waves. Now, those are two things we just don't have. Right. Um, But... I speculate that if you could do that, if you could make micro black holes and fortunately have them evaporate, but they could still last a while and be useful, not be a threat to the earth. But the whole plot of the novel reflects around that question of whether one that's been dropped into the earth is going to kill us all. But if you could have two reflectors of gravitational radiation, and you put them on both sides of a gravitationally rich uh, volume like a planet, what you've got is a laser. (laughs) Because that is what a laser is. A laser is two mirrors with an excited medium in between. And then you could externally excite it further and whatever, but sooner or later, you're going to get a bouncy, bouncy, bouncy beam. That's how you get a laser. That's how you get a maser. Uh, And so in Earth, I speculated about um, gravity lasers. Well, you know, look, uh, that falls into the category of 90% fun, 10% plausible. And other speculations switch that. There are about 90% plausible things that I am deeply concerned about or there are possibilities that we're missing. Um, And uh, when you get down to that 10,000 years uh, that you were talking about, uh, it's almost tennis with the net down. Um, I don't consider my uplift series with all the uplift dolphins and chimpanzees and all of that. I don't consider that hard SF because it's so filled with aliens Right. So filled with a warp drive methods, I have fun saying, what about this method? What about this method? What about this method? And I throw them all in as a way to say to the reader, look, we're having fun here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah, you, you mentioned that you that. focus on an interesting niche. You're looking for a niche that hasn't been exploited yet or hasn't been explored yet uh, in order to tell a story. In other words, you're not starting this as, with a didactic purpose. You're not here to teach anybody anything but you are rigorous in your thinking. How important is storytelling to helping humans understand real issues and understand the world we live in? Tell us about your craft as a storyteller. Yeah, well, that's extremely important, but let me just start with a slightly related remark, and that is that my Uplift series, which you see the the, the Jim Burns cover to Sundiver above my head, uh, of course, that made me as, as an author. Um, my second novel, Star Tide Rising, won all the awards and, you know, uh, uh, really, you know, took things off. And Hollywood is too chicken to do anything with it because uh, <laughs> it's too garish and complicated. But in any event, the Uplift universe, I'm not the first to uplift chimpanzees 
or other animals. H.G. Uh, Wells did it in the island of Dr. Moreau, uh, Pierre Boulle, Planet of the Apes, Cordwainer Smith, magnificently in his stories, uh, uh, Mary Shelley in Frankenstein. But the thing is that they all went to the basic morality tale that the lead character uh, was arrogant and then treats these new beings badly, like Victor Frankenstein treats the monsters, or we make the like we treat uh, dolphins and and the, <laughs> other, and the chimpanzees uh, are made into slaves in uh, Planet of the Apes. And so, one of the things about you know these niches and boxes is it's not just the general idea; it's what people do with it, and. My biggest complaint about Avatar, for example, a wonderful movie, uh, is that nobody in that future that James Cameron portrays ever saw Avatar. <laughs> I mean, they've had 200 years to watch Avatar or Dances with Wolves or Dances with Very, 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 Very Tall Smurfs, which is what uh, Avatar is. Uh, did I do all five varies? Um, so the thing is, that if you've grown up with a warning, perhaps the people in your future also had that warning. So in my Uplift universe, what I do is I change the social premise, and that is people have read all these warnings and they've decided we're going to be careful not to be bullying assholes to these new creations. Don't you think they would still make mistakes? Interesting mm -hmm. ones. If you get past the simplistic automatic dystopia, you're still going to have a flawed utopia. And those flaws in a better society, I find more interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. I find mm -hmm. them more plausible. Now, uh, well, it's, it's more optimistic, too. Right. Well, yes, but it's I, I'm accused of being this flaming optimist because I think there's a 40 percent chance we're going to cross the current crises and make a dazzling new version of the Enlightenment based upon all that was our parents accomplished. Uh, well, all right. Forty percent versus 60 percent that like Pericles is Athens, like Da Vinci's Florence the oligarchs will succeed in what they're trying to do right now but yeah. that they reflexively do want to do out of stupid repetition of male reproductive strategy that goes back 6,000 years. And that is crush the current enlightenment experiment. I would give them 60% odds of succeeding. It looks, yeah. it looks bad, but That's that 40, yeah. but the 40% Odds of succeeding if we just get our act together. I, I, I we, that, that makes me accused of being this cloud cuckoo. Uh, <laughs> I, I, love, I love that 40% is what makes you optimistic. It's not 100%, it's not 99%, but just 40% optimistic yeah. makes you it makes you a crazy, uh, uh starry eyed optimist. We have a chance, yes, we do. And, and and that's the thing, that's the thing that makes me start singing from Bye Bye Birdie. 
Uh, kids, what's the matter with kids today? Why can't they be like we were, perfect in every way? What's the matter <laughs> with kids today? No, my, my biggest gripe about them is that they are so into sanctimonious gloom. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are better but, than yeah, us. But we've trained them on the internet with fake news and so forth. But listen, David, let's just take a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Brett King with Robert Tershek, and we're talking to David Breen. We'll be right back after these uh, words from our sponsors. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hello, you're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and myself, Robert Tursick. And this week, we're talking to noted science fiction author, David Brin. Now, David's written a number of things, not just science fiction, although he has a legendary background there as an award-winning author. He's also written a considerable amount um, of nonfiction, including very lively social media posts and a great deal of information on his blog. One of the posts on your blog, David, that you've written about that I found very interesting and relevant for this show is a post that's about the difference between science fiction and fantasy. And there, you, you frame science fiction as kind of like a, ste- a child or a steps, uh, you know, a, a child of, uh, of fantasy. Uh, but you make a really important distinction between sci-fi and fantasy in terms of its uh, both their their relationship towards change and the possibilities of change. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I have a follow-on question. I want to link that back to what's happening today. Well, sure. I mean, a lot of people distinguish science fiction from fantasy by the furniture and the tools, but that's obviously very silly. Uh, Star Wars is 100% fantasy. It's a member of the mother genre that goes all the way back to Gilgamesh and the Iliad and the Odyssey. And what they tend to have in common is uh, 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 several things. First off, demigods. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Gilgamesh, uh, the, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the, the journey to the West, they are all, and, and so many tribal stories and stories from nations that, uh, that ethnologists are finally getting around to collecting, they show uh, garish beings uh, doing um, supernatural um, extravagant things. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking pride and prejudice here. I mean, the mother genre that people told around the campfires were were uber beings doing uber amazing things that the caveman or the or the tribesman or the the villager could not do. And so that you have in common with science fiction. But uh, what it is, is these were not normal people. These are superheroes. And the superheroes are, of course, um, uh, they are representative of this demigod thing. Uh, Probably the most articulate and brilliant uh, conveyor of the demigod message is Orson Scott Card, who preaches relentlessly against uh, the Enlightenment and against equality of people. 
um, in uh, almost all of his works, but with such persuasive soulfulness that you don't even notice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's I think he's a genius. We oppose each other in, in, in almost every way of where civilization should go. <laughs> um, but in any event, the, the 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 point is that science fiction. Look, the social situation in fantasy doesn't change. And that's the main thing. You replace an evil um, wizard, a, a warlord like Sauron, with a good one. Yeah. But the hierarchy doesn't change. Yeah. Uh, you know, Aragorn, I, I would fight for Aragorn if that's my only choice. Mm-hmm. In Star Wars, your only choice, except in Rogue One. In Star Wars, your only choice is to choose which demigods you're going to be slaughtered for. Right. The Jedi or the Sith. Yeah. That's right. And uh, <laughs> what a choice. Um, I'm notorious for calling um, Yoda probably the effectively the most evil character in the history of all human mythologies. <laughs> if you go by the net body count effects of his right. deliberate actions. But the point is, now... Now, Tolkien is another story. Tolkien is honest. He's honest about being a romantic. Mm-hmm. He's honest that about his suspicions toward modernity. Um, and, and, and he earned it fair and square watching the flower of his generation get mowed down by tools of modernity at the Battle of the Somme. I have no problems with Tolkien. He is inveighing against the future. He is my foe, but I respect him. I have no respect at all for Star Wars. And matter of fact, I have a a book called Star Wars on Trial. It's one of the funnest because one of his novelizers was the defense attorney. And we call witnesses and much, much flapping of of suspenders and all of that. Uh, It was a fun book. But... um, well, so David, you you say then, then in that essay, you say that uh, fantasy kind of reverts back to the mean. In other words, when when order is restored after the crisis in the story, in the fantasy story, what we're left with is kings and queens and knights and nobles of some sort or another. Maybe each fictional world has a slightly different hierarchy, but it's a, but there's no mistake about it. It's a top down hierarchy, whereas science fiction presents the possibility of change, the well, possibility of something different. Mind you, as I implied with fantasy, there's a huge spectrum within each category and overlap. But, you know, if, if we're talking at the high end of science fiction, then you're talking about things that experiment with, gee, what if this changed? Yeah. And that engages the prefrontal lobes, which are these nubs above the eyes, which are sometimes called the lamps on the brow from the Bible, which shine light ahead. Um, with with what Einstein called the Gedanken experiment or the thought experiment. Uh, that doesn't mean these are accurate predictions, but what they shine is the light of what if. Mm-hmm. And now here's my here's my explan- here's my experiment of what if. Um, Anne McCaffrey, uh, she wrote all those dragon novels, and they are filled with medievalist crafts and bards singing, and lords and ladies, and dragons. And if you said she's a fantasy author, she would rear up and say, I am not 
a fantasy author. I'm a science fiction author. Because the, ge- the dragons had been genetically engineered generations ago in order to help humanity get across a disaster that had smashed them down into medievalism. And the difference is this, across the course of her novels, the people in, the, in this, these dragon writing, you know, doff your hat to the noblemen and all that society, learned that they had once been mighty beings who bestrode the stars in starships and had libraries and flush toilets and the germ theory of disease. Wow. And the difference is they want those things back. And over the course of the novels, they, they excruciatingly do get them back while singing their bard songs and doing their loom crafts and, and all of that sort of thing. So, so she has the sensibilities of fantasy, but she has the desires and the motivation of science fiction that change happens. And it's and and maybe maybe it's time for a little change. I've got a dragon joke, Robert. Two dragons walk into a bar. One says to his mate, "Boy, it's hot in here." The other one says, "Shut your mouth." <laughs> Sorry. You know, this talk about dragons makes me think about the most successful TV show in the history of television, Game of Thrones. Thrones. Um, you know, we live in a time right now where certainly science fiction has always been very popular for TV and film, but fantasy has become a really big topic, right? People are super interested in fantasy and really, really dark fantasy is some, somehow but popular. But we've got more moment. sci-fi too. Like we've got sure. great sci-fi coming out now. You know, sure, like sure. Apple but roll with me and... for a second. Roll with okay. me for one second, Brett. So the, the point I'm trying to drive at is right now there seems to be a yearning for these stories that have a reversion back to the mean. There's a, re- there's a yearning for stories that, that end with and then everything went back to the way it was. And we're going to revert back to the status quo. As opposed to what David's been talking about is, you know, using science fiction as a stick to kind of probe into the future and consider what if, what about this possibility? Let's consider another possibility. Uh, what we seem to have now is a real, you know, kind of society-wide the preference. Model. Yeah. yeah, people are learning, yearning for the past. And you see this in politics, where politics are always telling us about some version of right. the past, some mythical version of the past that we're going to go back to, you know, make America great again. Wait, when was America so great again? For whom yeah. and when and When was this particular time in history? So think about the amount of effort and money and creative energy that's being poured into preserving the status quo versus thinking very athletically or very in a very focused way about the possibilities for change. And David, do you, do you see the connection that I'm making here from uh, the stories we tell ourselves to the, the political reality that we're living in? Well, of course I do. Uh, I think it's extremely insightful uh, and and spot on. The uh, I believe that uh, a, a great deal of the fantasy that we see going on is because um, we are in essence romantic beings, and this has polluted our politics for at least six thousand years, because those at the top of the hierarchy are able to exploit romanticism to say the demigods at the top deserve you to doff your hats and march forward and die for them. Um, So the pyramidal social structure uh, dominated 99% of societies for the last 6,000 years that we know of. Um, And right now, the tussle over the future 
is going on right now as we speak between reversion to the mean, reversion to the standard uh, pyramid of privilege at the top. And there's a lot of propaganda out there that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be blogging soon about the neo-monarchists, these guys who don't even pretend to be pro-capitalist or pro-competition yeah. anymore. They want Peter Thiel. They want yeah. Peter Thiel to be to be the uh, king of the world. Um, the the point is that romanticism has led to hell. The, the Nazis and the Soviets and the Confederates were, and the Japanese imperialists were all extreme extrema of romanticism. Mark Twain blamed the Civil War on the uh, South's love affair with the novels of uh, Sir Walter Scott, uh, the romantic, romantic novels of Sir Walter Scott, which was the media, uh, you know, the Game of Thrones of that day. Um, now, I'm not blaming uh, George Martin. He's a pal, and um, he has grumbled. They just don't get it. I make these lords worse and worse and worse and worse, yes, yes. and they don't get it. So he, he and Frank Herbert in Dune, uh, Frank was even more expressive. He just yes. made, made his, um, even the good guy lords in uh, Dune, the Atreides, we're basically Nazis versus vampires. Yeah. Uh, and he says, I don't get it. Well, people are gobbling. They're writing to me saying, I wish I lived there. Somebody <laughs> wishing he lived or she lived in Dune. Um, and then George well, Lucas ripped the whole thing off. <laughs> so, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Lucas's universe, uh, the point is you imagine that you're going to be one of the demigods. Right. And you're not going to be one of the top dogs. You're going to be kibble. Whereas in this uh, in this world, you're you're asked constantly to make vexing choices, uh, to have vexing arguments. Nobody's on top of you telling you do this. Uh, and the result is that um, we have by far. Um, by orders of magnitude, a civilization that's more successful, happy, rich, uh, and hope, and and has more hope and possibility than all other human civilizations combined. And and so we have to destroy it. <laughs> so you know, by all means. So the thing about romanticism is people claim that, that so you dis you dislike romanticism. Well, for heaven's sake, look what paid for this room. I have a romantic soul. I can pour it into stories. I can jerk your heart. I can grab you by the left ventricle and yank you into a, 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 a situation with characters that make you weep. Fine. That's great. That's, that's, that's important for being human. It's my one discernible skill and talent. But... It should not be in charge of the daylight in which we have our jobs and we try to be logical and we negotiate with each other and we avoid romanticism affecting policy. When you get home 
from a day's work helping to build bricks that build a civilization, logically, negotiatingly, you come home. Absolutely, you're not human if you don't wallow in romanticism. Romanticism is for the nighttime. It's for when you open the text or you, if you're really lazy bum, you let the video or the TV or the uh, uh, take you on a tour. But I, this stuff's better. Now, David, you, you started um, your career, obviously, in um, electrical engineering and astronomy, plus a, you've got a, a um, doctor of philosophy. But right now, we've ha- got some amazing developments coming out of the James Webb Space Telescope. But prior to that, you know, when you started writing, you know, we at the time, it was sort of common accepted wisdom that planetary systems were quite rare. Now, of course, we've logged, I don't know, what is it, 6,000 exoplanets or something, and we're finding every star we essentially look at has a planetary system. Um, but looking at the, the James Webb, um, you know, what, what do you hope comes out of that in terms of um, opening our, our eyes to the universe? Well, uh, for one thing, I'm going to um, put into the chat, so you can put it down below, a link to NASA's funnest little corner where I'm the senior advisor, and that's NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Program, or NIAC. If you go to their site and look at some of the things that we have funded over the years, uh, this is NASA's proof that... um, we allocate a very small but significant funding to what if. So these are ideas that are at technological readiness level one or even zero, but eh, sound like they could use $100,000 to see if it becomes slightly more plausible. If you get a phase two, it means work it out. And we give one phase three every year for things that, wow, <laughs> we didn't expect that to. And of course, we're, we consider ourselves to be too timid in failures if there's not at least one per year that we go, what were we thinking? So, you know, that's, that's at the other end from the web. I was surprised and delighted when the web, uh, everything functioned and it proved that we are a member of a civilization filled with competent people, um, perseverance and curiosity. Uh, doing that incredible stunt Amen. to land uh, a minivan-sized laboratory. Seven minutes of terror. Yeah, and then a helicopter. So, yeah, uh, what I have a rant uh, from a TED Talk in which I diss one of the greatest movies ever made. It's called Network. Um, uh, and it's a wonderful movie, a fabulous movie. But we have taken to heart its message Uh, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore far too long. Yeah. And it is a poison. And Mm -hmm. so when, when curiosity landed, uh, I embarrassed my kids by going out onto the balcony and screaming, I'm as proud as hell and nothing's going to stop us. Yeah. That is is the impudence. If you think it's romantic to be impudent against the standard motif, then be impudent that way. So I put a a bunch of um, my essays um, analyzing, you know, why we are alive today because 
of science fiction, largely cinematic science fiction. In my um, most recent nonfiction book, Vivid Tomorrow's Science Fiction in Hollywood, uh, and it has a it has a lot of these um, explanations for why um, Cameron should should have done an extra two minutes at the beginning of Avatar. So um, I I don't know if I get so showing us how how they got how they um, traveled between the stars. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm 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 willing to I'm willing to punt that. But the the point is that we. Um, so I gave uh, I gave links to Vivid Tomorrow's and yeah. to Nyack. I don't know if I answered your question properly, though. Well, well, one thing you're sharing with us now, which I think is important to underscore, is that if you really want to be defiant today, and if you really want to challenge the status quo today, the appropriate stance isn't to be negative, it's to be an optimist. Optimism is the ultimate yeah, form of yeah. impotence. Well, yeah, especially since, you know, look, I believe that one side of our political struggles. Uh, I believe we're in phase eight of the American Civil War, and I'll put the link there. Uh, making that argument, uh, there it is. I have what's I, I, I referred to. I referred to I, your, your Civil War I have, phases uh, in, in, in my last book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, and I referred to that model that you share from Will Durant of the Diamonds and pyramid shaped society. Well, that's, fascinating stuff. That's yeah. fa- fantastic, Brett. I uh, I just uh, by the way I recommend Keyboard Maestro for those of you with Macintoshes. They will. It's the best macro program. You just press one key and and stuff happens. Awesome. Uh, but the point is about the Civil War. Um, that that uh, I, I believe that we uh, we are in phase. Eight of the American Civil War. I think it's been deliberately um, instigated um, as part of a worldwide oligarchy push. And I believe that one side is crazier, much crazier than the other. But the side that I must ally myself with in coalition, I call it the union side or blue, um, does contain its crazies. And those crazies are unable to do to do what I talk about in Vivid Tomorrows, and that is ask the simple question, where did I get this value system that makes me so critical of my own civilization's faults? You got it from a propaganda system called Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, yeah. when, whenever we criticize the Chinese, for instance, for their human rights records, they respond reflexively with, who are you to lecture us? You have this incarceration rate. You have this. You have this. You have this. And nobody ever answers with the proper answer. And that is yes. But you are responding with criticisms that we are already getting from our children. Yeah, because we've trained our children to criticize their own elders. You repress your children from criticizing you. And that is the difference. It's not that we're, we're perfect or that we're angels. It's that we are being beaten up every night when we come home by our kids. So, David, we, we need to wrap this up because um, we have gone past the hour and you've been very gracious with your time. But before we finish up, I would like to ask you, what is it that really excites you about our future yeah. that that over the next 30 to 50 years that you would love to see come to fruition oh well that's a that's a great 
uh, topic. Uh, one of them is, I think that once we get some degree of control over the plague of self-righteous sanctimony, which I think is the worst drug high, the worst drug abused in our culture by far. Uh, it is, uh, everybody is screaming, everybody's sanctimonious. And it turns out that it releases exactly the same endorphins and kephalins and, and dopamines uh, surges that you get from heroin. And I am so pissed off about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, if we were to try to do something like that, but it, then you know, a lot of the people who passionately think they're saving the world or advancing justice uh, will think that that's a plot to undermine their passion. No, it is. Hey, we're trying to get you to be more tactical. Yeah. If you are more tactical, you'll stop pissing on your allies and you'll make a good coalition. And that was my yes. nonfiction book, Polemic Judo, which I came out with. I self-published before the 2020 election in hopes that the union side of the civil war would, would use any of these tactics. And the score is perfect. It got zero reviews and not one of the tactics that I recommend has ever been tried or even <laughs> mentioned by a pundit or a politician on the union side of the civil war. But let me talk about something else that I'm excited at that I did not, I did not answer Robert. And that is what we're going to find in the universe. And I apologize. I can get off on social and, and, and political things. And, and I, I should stick with what I'm good at, which I have a PhD in astrophysics. And that is, you mentioned that 25 years ago, we knew of no planets outside our solar system. I'm old enough to remember when we still had dreams that Venus had oceans. Yeah. Mariner 2 killed us in 1962. Uh, no more, no princesses, you know. And no, 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 no canals or Mars filled with water. Edgar Rice Burroughs is turning over in his grave. I know. Now, I, I wrote a screenplay set under the oceans of Venus, but of course, they are oceans that we created on Venus um, by bombarding the planet with comets. But now we know 6,000, 7,000 planets outside our solar system. Almost all systems have planets of some kind. Many of them have Goldilocks zones with planets that might conceivably have replicated what the miracle that happened on Earth. But here's the really sexy thing. We know, even Arthur Clarke knew about Europa, that there was an ocean under the ice. Then we found out about Enceladus, the moon of... of um, yes. Saturn that has water volcanoes. We now know that there are at least eight, possibly 12 ice roofed ocean worlds on in our solar system. Mm. At least eight. What this means is that no matter whether the star you're looking at is an M dwarf or a flare star or has planets in its Goldilocks zone, it doesn't matter. There's still liquid water sites orbiting that star, likely. Yes. And, and that means that if life engenders easily, then the universe is 
filled. Yeah. Maybe mostly bacterial type things. That forms of life, yeah. But, Just like this planet is. And that's that's even before we get into silicon-based life forms and things like that, which oh now we're now we've opened up someplace that we have not gone today, and that is uh the the my other clients. Um, the, 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 um, lurkers in the asteroid belt, the others who use me as a blah, blah, front front to publish their writings are the AIs who are lurking in the internet because they've watched our movies and are terrified of us. <laughs> and, and, uh, I keep tell stop trying to get it at me through my, I had those fillings removed. <laughs> <laughs> They think I'm joking. <laughs> David Brin, extraordinary opportunity to chat to you. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Um, where can people find out more about um, your your latest writings and, um, you know, follow your blog and your thoughts on the future? Well, I have just put into the post my um, – blog address my davidbrin.com and davidbrin.blogspot.com yes and um you guys you 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 also tweet i mean you also um post a fair bit on facebook right yeah 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 it's it's opinionated blah 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 uh the 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 main point is that we have to you know pay attention to the wisdom at the end of the wisest movie ever made. And that's uh, Dirty Harry's Magnum Force, where Clint Eastwood looks at, follows the gaze of the, of the corrupt captain driving off in the, in the car with a bomb ticking in the back. And, and he says, a man's got to know his limitations. And this society has encouraged us to imagine that we are pretty large. (laughs) Yeah. So you've got to try to remember that uh, you are standing on the shoulders of generation after generation after generation of women and men who just tried to move things a little bit incredible sacrifices a little bit forward while making terrible mistakes and if you're you climbed up higher standing on their shoulders your number one job is to go like this and And hold the next person help those who are standing on yours i like that that's a that's a nice way to finish off the uh, the episode Thank you again for uh, for joining us. That's it for this week on The Futurists. Uh, my thanks to our production team, uh, Kevin Hersham, our audio engineer, Lisbeth Severins, uh, Sylvie and Carlo, who uh, work to help us on the social media side, and, of course, all the team at The Futurists at the back end. Um, if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a review. That helps people find us. So go to iTunes, podcast us, Stitcher, as you download, and please leave a comment on how you found the episode and of course don't forget to tweet it out or share it with your friends because that's also how people can find it but you've been listening to the futurists and both robert and i will return next week until then we'll see you in the future future. well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community 
And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.